Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. On today's episode, I got to interview politician Matt Westmoreland. I have been so interested in the national political climate. It is such a mess out there, right? So I really wanted to see what the impact of a local politician could be and how we can engage for change. I love talking to Matt, and I hope you get some great insight for yourself. Hey there. Hey. 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 Hi. <laughs> How's it going? It's good. It's good. So I am so happy to have you on the podcast today. We are here with Matt Westmoreland. I'm going to totally screw this up, but you are the post to at-large city councilman for the city of Atlanta. You didn't mess that up at all. That's it. That's what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> right? Question of the day. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Pleasure. Look, look forward to talking with you. Um, so city council has 15 members, 12 of them represent the 12 districts that the city gets drawn into every 10 years. And then three of us are at large, which means citywide. And so I have to live in kind of a third of the city. Um, but I am on everyone's ballot and therefore I'm a citywide rep. So anyone can reach out to me. Very good. I guess when you are a public figure or when you're in the political world, you kind of have to put your phone number and email out. And chances are it's not like, great job, high five. It's usually I've got a problem <laughs> and I'm really passionate about it. So passionate that I picked up the phone to call. Yep. And so essentially your role is to deal with people's issues. It's not like, you know, you're rolling your eyes and going, oh, I have to deal with this. You're saying you're inviting that in. How, how did this all come about? Yeah. To, tell me about your journey. Sure. No, happy to. So born and raised here in Atlanta. I'm a native. I came up through Atlanta Public Schools, went to Morningside and graduated from Grady High School back in 2006. Um, was interested during my time in high school in education, um, public transportation, economic development. One of my teachers at Grady was a Teach for America Corps member back in 2006. And so she was the first person to introduce me to that organization. And I kind of kept it in the back of my head when I was up at Princeton for college um, and ended up applying to TFA. And they placed me back here in Atlanta at Carver High School. And so two days after graduating from college, I was in a Georgia Tech classroom going through Teach for America Institute um, and went into the classroom in the fall of 2010. Loved it. Loved my kids. Had wonderful colleagues. Had a great principal. Um, had a terrific experience at Carver while the school system was going through some really tough challenges around the cheating scandal back in 2010 and 11 and 12. And so I would, I would teach all day at Carver and then I would drive up to the APS central office and watch a lot of infighting and dysfunction and board meetings that didn't, were not connected to my experience as a teacher. They weren't talking about kids. The school system had a 51% graduation rate, um, a lot of challenges. And so I decided to run for an open seat on the school board back in 2013. And that kind of started this whole political trajectory. So I need to pause for a second. Sure. You said in, in high school, you were interested in education. You were interested in transportation. Did you mm -hmm. say, how did that come about the political aspirations? Was it something you felt like you were born with or just kind of had an affinity for? How did that come about? Yeah. So I was 
I will admit I was the third grader who dressed up as Bill Clinton and shook everybody's <laughs> hand at the Morningside <laughs> Halloween Carnival back in 1996. So I was a very strange nine-year-old. Um, You're like da- the Alex P. Keaton. <laughs> yeah. My dad's a judge um, here in Fulton County. Uh, and I, I honestly think he being in that role and I just, I remember he brought the newspaper home every night and would sit it down on the table in the den and because I wanted to be like him, I would read the newspaper and he would talk to me about what was going on in the kind of judicial world of politics, which is a little more protected than um, things like school board and city council. Um, but it just it kind of developed over time. Um, it narrowed a lot. I used to be more interested in national politics and the older I have gotten, the closer to home it's become, um, partly because how broken Washington feels and how much you can get done at the local level, mm. right? School board has nine people on it. Council's a little bit bigger at 15. Um, but in each of those groups, if you can find either four folks or seven folks to sign on to an idea, you have the chance to pass a, an idea or a piece of legislation that impacts hundreds of thousands of folks and hundreds of millions of dollars. I guess with your father being a judge, that makes a lot of sense that you felt like you could make a difference. And I feel like as a community or as myself, there are issues that I'm really, really passionate about. I know my friends are passionate about, but it almost, it, it I don't know if it serves to take a path of apathy because we don't know that we can make a difference. And maybe understanding, and part of the reason why I had you on is understanding what ways can we make a difference and what really does resonate? There are so many issues are so complicated. And then once you start peeling back the level, the the layers, it's like, how, how do you even move forward? How do you navigate through? Yeah. So tell me about your experience with that or, or what that looks like for you. Sure. So one of the first things that comes to mind, and I started teaching when I was 23. Um, and in the spring of my second year teaching, the system briefly considered a proposal to merge. Um, Carver had four high schools at the time, um, and a proposal came out very late in the school year to merge them all together. Um, And I remember working with colleagues who were teachers and then with our students, and we organized. And we showed up in mass at a whole bunch of meetings and said, what's your plan? And they didn't have a plan. And we were like, we got a good thing going here at Carver Early College. Don't come and mess it up by changing things around until you are exactly clear on what you're doing and how you're doing it and when it's going to happen. Um, and they stopped. And so that was a kind of early example as a teacher where I saw that if you organize people and you use your voice in a very kind of targeted strategic way that you can affect change on a system that is kind of running the part of the world that you live in. Um, I think that's part of why I put my, Cell phone number, 404-408-0980, so publicly, and same with all of my email addresses, is that I think part of part of government's responsibility is to be accessible and responsive to everybody. Um, and whether it was APS trying to rebuild after the cheating scandal or the city continuing to go through a lot of issues around corruption and transparency and ethics today, um, that you have to be able to be contacted by the folks who put you in office and you have to respond to them with as comprehensive and thoughtful an answer as you can give them if we're going to try and win and keep people's trust in government. Yeah. So 
That brings up a good point. So a few years ago, I went to a SINS meeting, and SINS is the Council for In-Town Network Schools. Do I have that right? Neighborhood Neighborhood schools. schools. And um, I am really passionate about it. Education, as as you know um, from our dealings in the past. Yep. And so I I went there. I didn't know who you were. I had never seen you spoke, and you were speaking at that meeting. And I have to admit, I judged you that you are young, you're white, you're privileged, you're Ivy League educated. Yep. It's a very mixed community, but somehow. Despite all of these things that that are who you are, it's not like something you could change, right? right? Yeah. You still get through. How do you instill trust? I mean, John Lewis, the congressman John Lewis is a huge fan of you that you've worked with him. How do you get through in such a mixed community? How do you establish trust? Yeah. Um, so that's a really good question uh, and one that has come up a lot over the last nine or 10 years. Um, a lot of different pieces to that question. Um, one is, so I was born and raised in Morningside. Um, both of my siblings are adopted, uh, and my sister is African-American. Um, and I went to Inman and Grady for middle and high school at the time were both majority African-American as well. Uh, and so I think that when I got to Carver, having gone through schools like Inman and Grady put me in a position, um, to be able to, to, I had been through an experience um, and was able to relate to to life at Carver a little bit. Um, what I learned at Carver was just an incredible number of, of stories and values and lessons from my kids. Uh, and we would have really open conversations. I remember one day, kind of during the beginning of my first semester teaching, one of my kids said to me during a conversation in Current Issues, Mr. West, you know, you it's you're not going to understand this. It's not because you're white. It's because you're rich. Mm. Um, and you know, you kind of sit with that with 18 year old student in front of you and you're 23 and you're white and she's black and you're a man and she's a woman and you grew up in an upper middle class house in Morningside. Um, and she grew up in a really challenging circumstance in Carver. Um, and being able to sit with and learn from, and have so many different experiences with my kids at Carver, I think has helped me begin to understand just how complicated and complex the world is and how many different things exist to push down so many pieces, segments of the population. Um, And over time, it's become really clear that as a upper-class straight white man, um, I've got immense privileges um, and have had opportunities that have come to me just because of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important for folks in a position like mine to first say all of that out loud and acknowledge that it exists. Um, And then to point out that, you know, I've had all these privileges um, and there are so many kids in the case of either teaching at Carver or being on the school board that have not had anywhere close to those opportunities. And the two-parent household I grew up in where both of my parents had the opportunity to go to grad school. They both had cars, and I had quality preschools right before I even got to kindergarten. I had just built such an incredible foundation that is not an opportunity for the vast majority of kids who live in Atlanta. Um, And so when we talk about budgeting at the school system or when we talk about where we spend our time and our energy and our resources at the city, I think it's helpful for me to be able to say that. You know, it costs more 
to educate a kid who goes to Thomasville Heights Elementary School um, down in Southeast Atlanta than it does a kid in Morningside. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to shift our budget at APS to weight the formula so that we're sending more money to Thomasville Heights than we send to Morningside. Wow. Um, And I think that far and away my four years in the classroom um, and all of the kids who I taught helped me see all of that firsthand. And so when I was moving around the city as a school board member and now as a city councilman, um, I can have that conversation um, and, and talk about institutional racism and talk about white privilege. Um, and just this morning we were having a conversation about economic development in Atlanta and how it's geared toward you know, all of the buildings that are popping up in Midtown and Buckhead and so much of the South side has seen so little economic development. That's all on purpose, right? Like we, we have policies that have been enforced by local state and federal government for the last 60, 70, 80 years that led development to go certain places and not other places that led home ownership to be a reality for some people and not for others. Um, you got to surface those things and talk through them and then figure out how you can try and fix the wrongs of the past and remove obstacles in the present so that more people have an opportunity to succeed in the future. So how do you navigate when it is so complex? So it sounds like you're kind of in a position to reveal or expose and be transparent over some of the issues, some of the systemic issues that the community is dealing with, the city is dealing with. And there's so many layers of whether it's corruption or whether it's there, there's a, a challenge of the cities bringing in, they're spending a ton of money bringing in the Super Bowl or the Olympics or these huge Amazon HQ2, but they're not fixing our streets. They're not fixing the homeless. They're not fixing the things that aren't necessarily bringing in revenue. You get it, you see it on, from both sides, but how do you navigate a solution from there? And is it your brain or is it collaborative? Like how do you get through maybe the infighting? Yep. So it's got to be collaborative, mm-hmm. first of all. Um, there are 15 voting members of council. We've got a separate branch of government, the executive that, that the mayor obviously heads. You know, part of why... I ran for school board was because of what I saw was or wasn't happening when I was a teacher, right? And then when I got to the school board um, and I saw and was part of the progress that we were able to make, whether it was writing a new mission and a vision and a strategic plan or coming up with a new operating model that pushed decision-making to the schools, we came up with a turnaround strategy to try and help schools that had been struggling for a long time. We came up with a new funding formula, right, that was weighted. Um, we defined equity so that we actually tried to hone in on what we were talking about. And then as we made decisions in the future, it was, hold on, is this consistent with the definition that the 10 of us just came Mm -hmm. up with around a conference room table? And what became clear to me on the school board is that APS will always be needing to do a better job on the things it's in charge of. Um, but it cannot and isn't responsible for housing affordability. And it's not in charge of trying to make strides on the percentage of residents who live in food deserts um, or expanding MARTA, right? And so I would, I'd have these kids in my classroom and, and they would graduate and there wouldn't be a functional workforce development agency for me to send them to, even though they would always come to me and say, Mr. West, you know, I need a job. 
or they'd graduate and they'd get a job and then they'd be like, Mr. Wes, you know, can I call you at 5 a.m. tomorrow because I need an Uber because I got this job, but Marta isn't running at 5.30 and that's when I need to get there, right? And so it's things like that when you have had an opportunity to have those conversations, it pushes you to be urgent and it pushes you to point out those things. Like how do we fix it so that Marta can start running earlier in the day? How do we apply pressure, but also support to a broken workforce Atlanta um, so that the next generation of kids who graduate from Atlanta public schools, the ones who aren't headed to college, have a place they can go and get connected to a job that matches their skills and interests that pays a living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that APS cannot do. It's things that the city is charged with doing and has the money to do. Um, but I can't do it by myself. Right? Yeah. I can write a piece of legislation, but the way I get it passed is by going around to my 14 colleagues and saying, here's an issue. I've come up with a potential solution. What are your thoughts on it? Will you sign on as a co-sponsor? Let's move it through committee in a couple of weeks and then onto the mayor's office to become law. Um, and you have to do that in a collaborative fashion. It all sounds so easy and sensible, uh-huh. but that's not the reality, is it? No, <laughs> nope. What is the reality? Um, so I'll give you an example. Atlanta has an economic development arm, Invest Atlanta. Um, they, I think they do great work on what they have been charged with kind of over the last five to 10 years. You cannot go very far in Midtown, downtown or Buckhead without seeing the fruits of a concerted effort to drive real major economic development in that area, right? Whether it's $545 million code of building groundbreaking this or ribbon cutting that. Um, there's been so much energy taking place in, in that part of town. Our, which is a good thing. Our contract with them expired. Uh, and so I sat down the first couple weeks of April and sketched out a new contract that tried to shift the focus for the organization for the next five to 10 years, um, kind of centered around three or four pillars. One is spending time, energy, resources, and our focus on underserved communities, right? For every Midtown is jam-packed. There are commercial corridors and kind of nodes and neighborhoods that dot the South side of the city that are completely shuttered. Mm. Um, that could be home to awesome small businesses that, that people want to start in, in their own neighborhoods. And I was at a ribbon cutting, um, or a grand opening a couple Saturdays ago for a coffee shop on Cascade started by a resident in the neighborhood who's starting a small business and he's hiring workers. Um, and he was going to open up his, his spot and it's going to be a place for the community to come and the community to work. Um, and so figuring out how we help people like that who want to do more of that in, in our in and around communities that haven't seen things like that in a long time. Um, the second pillar is middle wage jobs. You know, it's, it's great to get Norfolk Southern to relocate here from, from Virginia with its $150,000 a year jobs. We have a lot of Atlantans who need a job that pays between 30 and $70,000. Um, and then the third pillar is generating wealth in communities of color, right? I, it's no news to anybody listening that, yeah. that, you know, the median white family has a, has a net value somewhere of like $110,000, $115,000 in this country. 
um, and the median net wealth for a, for a black family is like $8. Mm. Um, and there are hundreds of years of reasons for that. Um, and we need to, to the extent we can, pull on different levers to try and shift that for residents who call Atlanta home. And so you put all of that into a piece of legislation, um, and then you walk it around to your colleagues and you say, you know, here's where I think we should focus. What are your thoughts? What pieces of the puzzle do you want to take out? What things do we need to add? What metrics are missing or too high or too low? Um, and then you got to go over to the folks who run the economic development arm and say, what do you think about this? What are you capable of doing? What gives you heartburn? Can you do it with the resources that the city is giving you right now? Probably not. So then we need to work on your budget. Um, so it's doable. I mean, we had a, a work session. I introduced piece of legislation on April 15th. We had a conversation about it today, um, and we hope to move it through council by the end of June. And so that's a pretty cool story in how two, two and a half months, um, we'll have a new kind of policy vision for where we want our economic development arm to focus on over the next decade. Um, but it took the voice and thoughts and writings of a lot of people to make that happen. How do you figure out where to focus your energies? Is it what will have the most public public approval or is it by public opinion or is it something that you've witnessed? How yeah. does how does that how does the priority ranking? Yep. Good question. And there are only so many hours in the day. Yeah. Um and and one of the Fascinating. There are a lot of issues. There, there are a lot of issues. Um, the city is really complex. Like the city government itself is really complex. You got watershed and you got the world's busiest airport and you got the judicial branch and you got parks and rec and you got the firefighters and police and infrastructure, ro roads and, and trails and all that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of different ways. So last Monday, council adopted a resolution to create a task force to start talking about how to repurpose the city jail, right? Mm. That, for me, that conversation started 15 months ago when a group of activists from a nonprofit came and met with me at City Hall and said, we want to close the jail. And so I listened to their pitch, and then I started doing research on my own, and I saw that we were spending $33 million a year to run a Department of Corrections 471,000 square foot jail, 1,300 beds, 350 employees because of different criminal justice reforms over recent years. Some nights there were fewer than 60 people in the building. So it's like 5% capacity. Mm. And so that group pitched an idea to several council members. I wrote a resolution last August that six other people signed on to um, kind of starting that conversation. How do we go about closing the building Who's going to decide how we repurpose it? Where are we going to reinvest the savings? How do we take care of our staff? How do we make it clear to people that this building is not the jail that houses folks accused of serious misdemeanors or crimes? It's a it's a building, honestly, that has held folks who violate traffic offenses. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear to me why we ever jailed people who were driving on a suspended license, but we don't anymore. That probably would have been me after college. Yeah, there you go, right? Up a yeah. Lot. And, it, and you, you think about that, just to take <laughs> us back to a second, you and I getting in trouble for doing something like that, we get ourselves out of it. You know, there there were, before we passed cash bail reform in January of 2018, people could be held at our detention center for offenses like that because they couldn't pay 
$250 or $500, right? I've got 500 bucks, so do you. A lot of people don't. And when you don't have the money and then you have to spend three days in the detention center, you lose your job because mm. you didn't show up for work and then you can't support your kid. And so it's just got this ripple effect that's really destabilizing to families and communities. Um, and so this group started pitching an idea to me in March of 2018. And we passed kind of the first or introduced the first piece of the conversation in August. And then we passed this resolution last Monday. The mayor signed it yesterday. And now we're going to have a conversation about repurposing the building and reinvesting the money. That's huge. And yeah. even from a from a, a national political conversation yeah. over closing jails for misdemeanors and marijuana and, and uh, jailing people that don't need to be jailed. Yep. Um, and then another one, also last spring, a group from the Cancer Society, the Lung Association, the Heart Association came and met with each council member individually saying the city, you know, Atlanta is literally the only major city in the country without a comprehensive smoking ordinance. We've, we've taken steps here and there, like other cities had back in the early to mid-2000s. Um, but you name the city, New York, Washington, Boston, Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, California, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Savannah, Augusta, New Orleans. Um, so many cities around the country have said secondhand smoke is a serious health issue. E-cigarettes are an epidemic mm -hmm. among teenagers. Um, and everybody else has a ordinance. Atlanta doesn't. What are you going to do about it? And I was like, all right, let's go do something about it. And so several of us introduced legislation on April 15th to move that ball forward. And so, you know, the the jail came from criminal justice reform advocates and the smoking legislation idea came from the health community and the legislation around shifting the focus of Invest Atlanta came out of my own mind. So it comes from different places and you write them all down and try and not lose track of, of um, kind of what, what wants to come next. I went to one of our 15 city pools on Monday for Memorial Day. Um, and the every pool was free all weekend. Yeah. And, and it was great, right? There was a line at Piedmont, which is where I live. So I went over to Maddox Park. Um, <laughs> I was on that line at Piedmont. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and then I saw the director for the Office of Recreation on Tuesday and said Maddox Park was great. And then I said, how much did we make last year from revenue from charging the five bucks we charge when it's not free. And she said like $60,000 the whole mm -hmm. summer. And I was like, damn, we should make this free every day, all day. Um, there's a security, you know, we need to have the spots appropriately staffed. But so that has already triggered in my mind a topic to dig through as we think about the summer of 2020 is that, you know, how can we provide a place for folks to cool down, recreate, um, drowning rates among young African-Americans are really high. Um, and so how can we use our 15 city pools to employ kids who work at Carver, who can get certified to be lifeguards and make 15 bucks an hour teaching six and seven and eight year old kids in the community how to swim? Does your brain just automatically find solutions? Because I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I feel like I get stopped over, well, this blows and this yeah. is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and that line was really long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To wait, what if I can put it all together? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I um I was the editor of the newspaper at Grady for the Southerner, and then up at Princeton for the the Daily up there. And so my mind used to think in terms of story ideas. Every time I ever saw anything, I was like, all right, how do I turn this into a story? Because we need stories for tomorrow's paper. And so I guess my mind has shifted a little bit to every time I see something, I think to myself, all right, how can we turn that into a piece of legislation or a policy that might help folks? That's a great, that's a great, a great starting place to kind of train your brain to think a little bit differently. And I, I've been in sales forever, but you have the ultimate sales job. Politicians are the ultimate salespeople. And I wonder when you pass something like closing of the jail, it's got to feel like such a rush to get, to be able to help all these families, communities, whatever, but also to add to your building of trust because part of your trust is not only how you present to the world, but what you've done and how you break through. So I want to understand what that's like for you. It was, so Mayor Bottoms held a signing ceremony outside the detention center yesterday morning and I walked over from City Hall and she was surrounded by the 30 or 40 folks from Women on the Rise who had really been pushing this topic to me over the last year, but they've really been pushing it even longer than that. And it's been a concerted effort, right? It was first we want to institute pre-arrest diversion, and then we want to do marijuana reclassification, and then we want to do cash bail reform, and then we want to ban the box. And they had this checklist, and each time they accomplished something on the list, the population of the jail shrunk, and then it got to a point where it made financial sense to have a conversation about closing down the whole facility and to watch them react in the way they did to her signing this resolution that is the next step in the evolution of criminal justice reform. Um, And Atlanta was really cool because a number of them had spent time in that building, right? And so they know far better than you or I do um, the impact that it had on them psychologically and mentally, professionally, to their families. Um, And so to watch them push an idea to law was really cool. What is your North Star when you're dealing, when you're in the shit, you know, like yeah. when it's when it's really tough and things seem hopeless? Yeah. Uh, my kids at Carver, I spent some time. And they've, gra- like a lot of them have moved, like oh, I've sure. seen your Facebook yeah, post yeah, yeah, or Instagram post that they, yep. they keep coming back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so many different stories. It's the, Mr. West, you don't understand this because you, you're rich. I took a broke all sorts of school board policies back when I was a teacher, but I used to take kids home after a tutorial and we'd either stop at Wendy's and one time I stopped at a gas station because I needed gas and I put a whole tank of gas in my car. And when I got back in my car, the student turned to me and he's like, I've never seen someone put a whole tank of gas in their car. Mm. Usually it's just like, can I get five bucks on pump seven? And I was like, damn, that's, I don't have any idea what that's like. Right. Um, and so it's stories like that. This past Saturday, I met up with a former student at Walmart um, who's got two kids of his own um, to just hang out and buy some baby formula. Um, and it's as crazy as city government is, it's a real healthy North Star to be like, all right, we need to fix work source for you so that we can get you a job that pays a living wage so you can support your kids. We need to 
figure out this APS city of Atlanta relationship so that both of those entities are making a financial contribution into a gears, which is the early ed organization has a plan, right? There's a series of eight recommendations. People spent a lot of time in 2018 coming up with them to try and expand access to quality, early learning and early care in Atlanta. Um, you know, his two year old would benefit from that. And so it, you, things can get political and things can get petty and all of that is bullshit at the end of the day. Um, and it's helpful to always be able to think back to, to students. And I'm emphasizing kids who have struggled, um, just as important is, and just as cool is I'm like a TFA granddad, I guess, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm the dad and Marin Sorensen <laughs> is the grandmom, but three of my students from Carver have graduated from Carver, graduated from college and have gone on to teach for America and are teachers wow. right now. Yeah. Um, and that's a super cool, super cool. And you're so freaking young. I, I mean, know. You've 31. Runway, you've got a lot of runway ahead of you. What is, um, what is, what is your trajectory? What are you hopeful to do? I am focused on being a good city council person. I swear to God. You're um, so full of shit right I'm now. I'm not. I, <laughs> I, I, it would be disingenuous to not say I was ambitious, obviously. Um, no one runs for office at 26 or citywide office at 30, and they don't have ambition. Um, but I will tell you, I have watched, I've watched folks in politics kind of always thinking about what to jump to next where they like set their sights on a certain thing they want to do. And then you start to like compromise what you say or what you don't say or what you introduce or what you don't introduce or who you stand up to or who you don't stand up to. Cause you are always trying to get to that thing. Um, I was at a really rough first six months on the school board. I think I upset everybody in my district at one point or another with different things that I was either introducing or going along with, with the superintendent. Um, and after two recall threats as a 26 year old, you're like, all right, you know what? You can gather as much information as possible. You're going to talk to as many smart people as possible. And then you figure out what the right thing to do is for the city or for kids or for schools. And then you just do it and you keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love the school board. Um, Alex Wan was my district rep back in, and at that time, and he told me he was going to run for council president. Yeah. And I thought about his seat and I was like, you know what? I don't, that's not the right seat for me. I'm going to stay on the school board. And then Mary Norwood announced a couple months later, she was going to run for mayor. And I sat down again and I was like, all right, citywide council seats don't come open all that often. Um, and the school system in the city had spent the four years before that spending a lot more time fighting than working together. And I was like, maybe somebody needs to go across the street and try and bridge that divide and push for city money in early childhood and push to fix work source, which I've now brought up four times. You can tell I'm passionate about workforce development. Um, so I'm having a good first term. I, next election to run for re-election would be in 2021. And I really just want to focus on getting pieces of legislation and ideas that I care about across the finish line. And so far it's been my experience that things on the political side will work out the way they're supposed to. Let's hope. I'm wondering if, if your experience being on the inside and being in this life, it's very easy to look and think that politicians are good or bad. 
I'm hopeful that people are trying to do the best that they can and they may have different perspectives. Yeah. But is is there something for us to be fearful of when they talk about the corruption, when they talk about this this one didn't pay their taxes or whatever? Some of it's just kind of just trying to take people down a notch. But are they competent people yeah. that are trying to do their best? So, you know, I, I served on school board with eight other folks and I serve on council now with 14 or 15 if you count the council president. Um, we come from one of the cool things is that we come from very different kind of backgrounds and walks of life. I was 26 when I got elected to the school board. Cynthia Brisker Brown was 52, right? We were white, black, Hispanic, young, old from different geographic parts of the city with different socioeconomic backgrounds. I really do believe I dislike very few people ever. And so maybe I'm biased in that respect, but I enjoyed working with everybody on the school board I thought everybody was there for the right reasons. Mm. I thought they really did care about kids. Nobody ever did anything illegal or unethical in front of me. Um, and I've had a similar experience at the at the city council. Um, we approach issues differently, um, and I think that's okay. I think that's actually good and healthy good. for government. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, some of us are more liberal than others. Um, and some of us want to move faster than others. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I haven't met anybody on the school board or on council who ran cause they thought it was a sweet gig and they wanted to be in the newspaper and thought they were really cool. Like I, mm-hmm. I've met people who genuinely want to sit down at a work session and roll up their sleeves and, and try and, push through some tough issues and figure out how to make good policy. Yeah. I, and um, it's been, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat and I'm a proud Democrat and it's been great to work in nonpartisan governments. That's uh, why I wonder yeah. how, how do you kind of toe the line? I mean, you're in a major metropolitan city, which generally tends to lean Democrat Yep. Um, anyway. So it's not like you're in constant opposition yeah. in a lot of cases. And I I have been grappling with the thought of, are you more organized or are you more outraged? And there's a lot politically from the national landscape. I'm not sure about the local side, but uh, from the national landscape to be outraged about. And that is the design of the, the news, the media, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I guess my question to you, really the burning question for you is how, what is the best way to be organized so that your outrage doesn't outweigh mm. the organization to yeah. actually make an impact. So my favorite TV show of all time, probably unsurprisingly to some is the West wing. Um, (laughs) it started the, so stereotypical. Yeah, I know it started, it started my first month of middle school and went off the air my last week of high school. So I kind of like grew up watching the West wing on Wednesdays and then Sundays. There's this, there's a line toward the end season seven, I think where Toby Ziegler, the communications director talks about, you know, sometimes I wonder why am I here? Why am I not back in New York trying to turn around the schools? You know, why am I here pushing against the ocean? Mm. Um, and I've always thought about that because there've been times as a teacher, when you feel like you're pushing against the ocean, there've been times as a school board member and there are certainly times as a council member, but then you have weeks where you have a great conversation with your colleagues around moving a smoke free 
piece of legislation forward, you get to watch the mayor sign a resolution into law to take the next step on a criminal justice reform that you've been passionate about for the last eight or nine months. And then you have a, a session this morning where you see real progress in kind of turning the ship that is the city's economic development arm in being real when they say we want to focus on underserved communities and middle-wage jobs and building wealth in the black community. And that makes the hundreds of emails about, rightful emails, um, about you know leaking fire hydrants and crosswalks that need to be repainted or scooters or whatever the issue is of the time makes it all worth it um, because progress is slow, but it happens. Um, when Stacey Abrams lost in November, you know, turnout among young folks and minorities and women was huge. Um, and I've hoped, and I hope that 2020 will show that people didn't get kind of dispirited and disengaged and, and give up after losing such a close race. Um, cause you gotta, gotta keep pushing. Yeah, so that that's the concept over over Trump being in office of winning in 2020 that the only way will be impeachment that the Democrats are organized enough to do that. At least that's what they're the the theories are they're yeah. passing around. So I something that I'm thinking about. I wonder if there are things that we might be upset about that politicians can help What's the most effective way? Is it phone? Is it emailed? Is there one that weighs more than another, yeah. you know, Facebook post? Right. You know, what is the best way to, to engage? Is, yes. And, and speak your mind. Yeah, that's a really good question. For me, I'll do my own personal experience and then I'll try and speak for other people, sort of. I, I get emails all the time um, and respond to every single one of them and that's you're very responsive I and i thank that. you for that yeah no i, I, tr <laughs> I try um but i that's that's kind of my preferred i treat my in, email inbox as a to-do to -do list. list and so once i respond to someone and solve whatever issue they're concerned about i can archive it and keep working my way up and down the list um at cell phone or phone calls text messages people call my office a lot um and i'm happy to call them back i think those two things are probably, for me, they're the most effective. I don't, you know, there I have colleagues who choose not to check their own email and they leave it to their staff, which is totally fine. I think tagging in Facebook, I see it when when I get tagged in Facebook and I sometimes I'll read the article that someone has tagged me and asked me to read. I wouldn't say that's probably the most effective way to, yeah. to reach people. People stop by City Hall sometimes and say, they, they come by unannounced and say, is Matt in? And chances are I'm probably in a meeting. But if you reach out and talk about wanting to get together and find some time on the schedule, either with me or I try and take as many of those meetings as I can. I know that there are, I've got folks who work for me and my colleagues all have folks who work for them. And sometimes meeting with a staff member who is engaged in this stuff on a daily basis might even be more productive than meeting with the elected person themselves because they, they've got access to all the information and they've been dealing with mm -hmm. the topic, um, maybe even more than than the elected official has. And so, um, chain emails. I get a lot of those. I still respond to them. Chain emails. Yeah. Are those the thing? They are the thing. <laughs> it, it's like 
I don't know who created them, but it's, you know, click here and send a message to these nine people oh, on right, city right, council. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's wrote, you know, it's dear council member. And then it's the exact same yeah. paragraph. One, That's two, what three, I wonder. Four. Is it like a metrics thing? Like do people count the number of emails and that makes a difference? It doesn't. I think I that's think what so. I wanted to know. Like, yeah, you know, I, do those metrics mean anything? Do the phone calls mean something? I think a, a message from you written by you to me means something. Yeah. Um, getting, you know, back when I was on the school board, we had a conversation about building a bus barn on the north side of the city because both of them are on the south side right now. And I got something like 900 emails about the bus barn. Um, but they were all the same, right? Yeah. They were, they were just people clicked Maybe on this, this thing. Maybe this is an issue. Yeah. So, right. So <laughs> you know that people care about it, but the fact that it's the, no, the fact that those people just pressed a button that someone sent them instead of sending down to fashion their own thoughts on the issue, that will always weigh more. Um, and then same goes, I'm citywide. And so anyone who lives in Atlanta has a vote in my race. Uh, and I am your representative. Um, but then the other thing I would say is that make sure you're reaching out to the person in whose district you sit, yeah. right? Whether it's council or state legislature or school board or whatever, that people, that's their job is to pay attention to folks in their district. And those are who they're going to listen to first. So as we close, how can people find you? Yeah. <laughs> yep. So cell phone number is 404-408-0980. My Email address at the city is M Westmoreland, W E S T M O R E L A N D at Atlanta GA.gov. Longest email. I know, right? I'm on Facebook. Um, just search me. Same with Instagram, same with Twitter. Always happy to to chat and look forward to hearing any concerns you have that need to be fixed, but also any ideas. I think one of the things we've talked about is yeah. that some of the legislation making its way through council right now came from people reaching out with an idea. Um, and one day it'll be reality. And that's pretty cool. Well, thank you, Matt Westmoreland. You are a culture changer. Appreciate the invite. <laughs> Been a good chat. I hope you love my chat with Matt Westmoreland. If you'd like to contact him directly, I've posted all of his links in the show notes. If you liked today's episode, please rate, review, and if you care, please share. Most of all, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.